title of the sermon is Honoring the Dishonorable, and there are so many dishonorable people out there. We're not living in utopia, fairy tale land where everybody just loves each other. Man, there are dishonorable husbands. Dishonorable husbands become dishonorable fathers along with dishonorable mothers. Dishonorable elders, dishonorable ministers, dishonorable employers and managers, fraudulent referees, dishonorable coaches, dishonorable legislators, members of the judiciary, dishonorable people in the executive department, dishonorable kings, a lot of people dishonorable like Saul. But in this text, we see how that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that there are dishonorable followers of the Messiah who want to respond wrongly to the dishonorable authorities around them. But in this text today, David kind of gets it right, and that's good because he's had a couple tough chapters. David last week inquired of the Lord over and over again. This week, he plays the man who honors the dishonorable. Yeah, I know you're already thinking of exceptions, aren't you, you people? I'll grant you there may be some. We'll get there in a second. But let's walk through the text and see if we can understand maybe the main point before we start working on some of our exceptions. Saul is a dishonorable man. He's such a wicked man. Characterized by self-love, there's no one greater in his own eyes than he. He is his own God. He's more important than his country, than any of the citizens, than his friends and his servants. He's more important than David, the one that has been anointed by God. He's more important than prophets and priests. He's a legend. Just ask him. Characterized by self-love and disobedience. Because he's now God in his own eyes, he gets to kind of write the rules. I will determine for me that which is right and that which is wrong. And in those areas in which God's word applies to what I think, I'll, I'll give a thumbs up for that. But if God's word disagrees with what I think is best, therefore I am the supreme authority. And so Saul is one who is guilty of the witchcraft of disobedience, as the prophet says, characterized by self-love and by disobedience, by self-serving leadership. Oh, he may be called a public servant, but there's no serving in the public servant. He's a user, an abuser, who's willing to take the best of what you've got and apply it to himself to, to, to puff up his pillow, to pad his wallet. Samuel warned of this. And he didn't overspeak. Saul, because he is so consumed with self, is characterized by hatred and murder. We have seen how dangerous he is. Anyone who stands before him, any rival, anything that this spurs up the envy and the jealousy in him, he's coming after you. It doesn't matter. Yeah, he's coming after David, but he's coming after priests in the, the city of Nob. He'll even throw spears at his own son and use his own daughters to accomplish his own purpose. So full of self-love that it manifests itself in inner hate, which shows itself in murder. P. 
People who love themselves are dangerous to other people. That's one of the traits of a dishonorable leader. And uh, if there are any children left in the room, if your parents told you not to say the word stupid, don't. But Saul was. He's influenced by an evil heart. Around him are evil counselors. And upon him comes an evil spirit. And he's always doing that which is right in his own eyes. He's never meditating on God's laws. He has no interest in listening to prophets and priests. And so Saul is one who plots and he schemes and he fights against the Lord and against his anointed in chapter 2 we see of Psalms. He leans on his own understanding. He walks in the path of the fool and he keeps kicking against the goads. He keeps banging his head on God's wall and he keeps losing. He's foolish, if you like that word better than stupid. But he won't give up. He never learned. So on this day, he learns more information. David has been sighted. David is over there in the wilderness of En Gedi, and that's on the western side of the Dead Sea. It's kind of this mountainy, rugged area, but there's a, a beautiful stream and springs that come down from the mountain somehow. I've never been there. Maybe you have. And evidently, right there near the Dead Sea in the wilderness is an oasis. There is flowing water. There is green vegetation. There are animals, because animals like flowing water and green vegetation. And there are caves for shepherds to hide their sheep in. Uh, there are caves for wanted men to hide from Saul. Saul learns that's where David is. Saul has just won a victory against the Philistines at the end of chapter 23 that we didn't treat. Saul should be rejoicing in the Lord, but what so does Saul do? I'll take out the Lord's anointed. He picks 3,000 choice men and heads in that direction. Saul is ready now to be the Antichrist, taking out the Christ. He continues his lunacy. Maybe this time it will work. He travels, and about the time he gets to that district, we see the weird providence of God. Some might say, nature calls. Is God sovereign over everything? <coughs> kind of interesting. Saul, being with his men, excuses himself. Can't find the, the sign for the men's cave and the women's cave, so he has to pick one. And He looks around and he says, that one will do. So he leaves his men outside and he goes into the cool of the cave. It's, it's a private cave, <laughs> at least he thinks. It's the most dangerous cave on the planet for him. For within this cave are suffering men, hiding men, wanted men, angry men, <coughs> dangerous men. Saul finds his place in the back of the cave, takes off his armor, I believe. I believe he disrobes and takes off his royal robe. this point what's going to happen we see a dishonorable man in a cave we see him surrounded by dishonorable fellows he selected the wrong cave these guys are suffering because of bad government it's just true it's 
Samuel told them, he's going to use and abuse you. He's going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to levy taxes on you. He's going to give and redistribute your money to his favorite friends. And we've already seen that it's men of Benjamin who occupy the high posts. He has no sense of justice except his justice, which is not God's justice because he writes the rules. And he has targeted these men. And around David in chapter 21, we see that they were the, the ones who were struggling with debt. Obviously, they owed something they couldn't pay, and they were running for their lives. They were suffering because of unjust government. These men were also suffering because of their attachment to the Messiah. So at this point, you don't need to raise your hand, but I could ask you, does anyone ever feel like this, that maybe we're suffering because of unjust government, and it's been there for a long time, and we're also now suffering even more than we used to because of our attachment to the Messiah. It's getting harder and harder to just live life normally and freely and give all glory and honor to Jesus Christ. That's these men. Rightly, they recognize David's character. They've also noticed his incredible skill. They know something about his anointing, that this is God's man. And what have they done? They have come forward at church. They have raised their hands. They have said, we're ready to make our vows. Jesus Christ, uh, they don't say Jesus Christ, excuse me. The Messiah, the Christ, David Christ, is our leader. He's our man. We're going to follow him. We're going to sacrifice for him. We're going to fight with him. We're going to fight for him. We're going to exalt him and enjoy. We're even going to sing, you are my king. This is who they are. Men who are suffering because of injustice, suffering because of their attachment to the Messiah. They're wanted. 3,000 men are looking to remove their heads. Their thinking is not totally wrong. We want to honor God. We want to serve God and promote the things of God by honoring and loving those things that God loves. And David's one of those things. We want to honor God by promoting God's man, our friend. That's what good friends do. We've sworn allegiance. We keep our words. We want to end the reign of terror for us, our families, and our citizens. Someone's got to stop this mischief. This would be very, very good for it to end, for righteousness and justice to be enjoyed throughout the land. Somewhere they heard a word that David was going to reign supreme over his enemies. I don't know where they got this information. Maybe from the scriptures before they put it together. Perhaps Gad or Samuel had said something like that. Maybe Jonathan had proclaimed such. Maybe it was the priest. Or maybe David had penned a psalm and they had sung it together. But somehow they rightly know that in the end of all this, David will dominate his enemies. You see all the rightness that is here? That's who these guys are. Suffering worshipers, suffering thinkers, suffering citizens concerned with their house and their church and the liberty in their land who hate injustice. At this point, armed with his information, they share their thoughts with David. All right, dude. That's how it says in Hebrew. You know God did this. He's looking all over for the place. All of a sudden, he's got to go hit the men's room, and the Lord brings him right to your place where he disarms and disrobes and is found right here. 
Can you read the signs, David? Look how God has humiliated your enemy, brought him here, caused his insides to move a bit, helped him choose the worst cave possible, separated himself from his men, and brought your enemy to this place. It's time for justice, Dave. It's time for equity. It's time for vengeance. We know that there's a time for everything. There's a time to run and there's a time to stand tall. David, this is the time to worship God with your sword. Do you remember how you stood against another giant? His name was Goliath. Man up, Dave. Seize the day. This is how dishonorable fellows following the Messiah wanted to do that which is forbidden of the Lord in response to the dishonorable authority before them. I haven't proven that to you from the text yet, but just let me go ahead and tell you. A dishonorable authority is seen in Saul. Dishonorable worshipers and followers of the Messiah are seen in the men in the tent. But as I told you, David has a really good day. Let's pursue the right end, but in the right timing and in the right way. Let's not pursue the right end at the wrong time and in the wrong way. Such was the temptation with Adam and Eve. All right, Adam and Eve, psst, come here. You've been created in the image of God. You're supposed to procreate and create like God. You're supposed to govern and put things in order like God. Surely you're supposed to think like God. So now what you're going to do is follow my lead, and we're going to do that which is good. We're going to help you understand and judge and discern between good and evil, but we're going to do it my way. Let's go ahead and eat from the fruit and watch what happens. All right, Abraham and Sarah, you two old friends of mine. We've been giving it a go, haven't we? God promised a special son. God promised a special seed, a special people, and uh, you... You've been giving it a good shot, but uh, just not working out so well, is it? It wasn't for no reason that the Lord gave you, honored you with Hagar. Let's take matters in our own hands. Let's take Hagar in our own hands. Let's go. It's time to get this show on the road. Hey, Aaron and the Israelites. Isn't it great to be part of the people of God? God has saved us. He has delivered us from our enemies. He's brought us to his holy mountain. We ought to worship him, right? Yes. Where's Moses? What's going on? All right. We all know what good worship looks like. Remember those good days back in Egypt when we, when we worshiped around the golden calf and we played and we gave it all we had in this passionate worship? Let's build a calf, a golden calf, and let's worship the God who saves us. What do you say? One more illustration. Hey, Jesus, son of Nazareth. So you appear to be a pretty special man. I've watched you for a while. God's hand does seem to be on you. Recently, there was some stuff going on in the wilderness. I saw the water upon you, and then the spirit came upon you, and the voice talked about you, and my goodness, you're quite the fellow. It does look indeed like maybe the world is going to be your world. But you were born in Nazareth, in Galilee. 
you're kind of suspect in your birth. People are talking a lot about your mom and dad. You've been poor all your life, having to be a working man. It doesn't look like your suffering's over. So how about we just, how about we just short change, shortcut all of that? You bow before me now, and then I will bow out and give you the heavens and the earth. All of these were temptations. Remember last week we talked about open doors, opportunities to maybe even do the right thing, but to accomplish it at the wrong time and in the wrong way. This is where we find David. David, you have been called to be king. He is your enemy. Your people deserve better than this. God shines on righteousness. He wants you to be valiant. He wants you to be fight. David, go. Take your sword. Finish the deal. I know David's tempted because David moves in that direction, carrying his sword with him. Oh, we know he's externally tempted. Was he internally tempted? I have no reason to doubt that. He's a man just like us. David goes and he comes close to Saul with his implement of execution there. And David, something restrains David. He does not do what normal people would do, what his men are encouraging him to do, what some preachers would encourage him to do. Instead of taking off his head, he only takes off a corner of his robe. Did you see in the text what happened? He smote Saul's robe, and God smote his heart. Some would say, that's just such a little sin. Come on. He's cut to the heart. He has this sense that he has done something wrong, which means I think there must have been some impure motivation in his heart as he takes the robe. At best, maybe just pragmatism as he wants to go, no, 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 you can't get me. Or worse yet, an arrogance that says, I got a piece of your robe right now, and pretty soon I'll have the whole thing. I don't know. This is what I do know. He takes off a corner of his garment, and his heart is incredibly troubled. I think somewhere along the line, he had a change of thinking, a change of affection, a repentance that we talked about. And then we see the fruits of repentance as he goes back, and what does he do? He starts having a conversation with his men, but it's really not a conversation. It's a beatdown. The English word here in the ESV says persuaded, but in the Hebrew it has this idea of he tore them up. He looks at them. He says to them, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David tore up his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. He would have them recognize there is a Lord. There's someone who sits on the throne of thrones. And the one who sits on the throne of thrones has his own anointed. I'm one of them in waiting while there's another one of them named Saul whom the Lord has placed on the throne. And as bad and wicked as he is, as dangerous as he is, as self-serving as he is, as much as it would be so great not to have him around anymore, he is the Lord's anointed. And God forbid 
that I dishonor the Lord's anointed by killing him. God forbid that I dishonor the Lord's anointed by even taking off the corner of his robe. David persuades his men that this is the way they are supposed to honor the dishonorable. He wins the debate. He allows Saul to leave. I think Saul walks out of there, new man. Maybe he had even taken a nap in the cave. He's feeling pretty good, like, I'm the man. Where's my 3,000 fellas? Ready to rule the day until he hears a familiar voice behind him. It's David. Notice the respect with which David has spoken to the men, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's anointed. Now notice the respect with which he speaks now. My Lord, my Father. Notice the respect of David as he hits the ground and bows before him. But this, some of you are waiting for the words that we can fight. This is the, you're going to like this part of the sermon. Touch not the Lord's anointed. And that is used by ministers. A lot of times they call themselves apostles or bishops. It's used by missionaries to say, don't mess with God's preacher man. Which to them means you never question. You never debate. Just keep your mouth shut and fall into line because he's God's man and you don't want to get in trouble for messing with God's man. That's not what it means. David honors the dishonorable King Saul by confronting him with truth, by letting him know there is righteousness, there is wicked, and I am more righteous right now and you are more wicked, that I am with God, you are against God, and he speaks Truth to power. And this is exactly what you're supposed to do as you find yourself suffering under the mighty hand of God because you have bad government and because you're aligning yourself with the Messiah. And it looks like we could get out of this if we start fighting the world's battles like I do. You know, a little revenge, doing things, dirty tricks for their dirty tricks. Filthy language for their filthy language. Let's just get it on for the glory of God. Now, this is how you get it on. You honor with words. You honor with posture. You honor the dishonorable man because he's placed there by the honorable God. And then you honor the dishonorable man by telling him the truth. So David will not be silent. He will not touch the Lord's anointed with his hands, but he will touch his heart if he can with his words. And he says, your counselors are no good. They're leading you wrongly. He says, your concerns are no good. I'm not coming after you. I'm like a, a dead dog or a flea. That's how harmful I am to you. He says, your clothes are no good. <laughs> Take a look at your robe. You see what I'm holding? I had the opportunity to take you out, but I didn't. Character flows into conduct. Conduct flows from character. This shows you that my heart towards you is one of honor, not dishonor. Or else I would have taken you out. Then notice what David does. He honorably prays 
for justice. May the Lord judge. And may the Lord give sentence. And may the Lord plead my cause. And may the Lord avenge. May the Lord deliver me from your hand. It's going to happen. And I will wait. Saul has an emotional moment here. I'll save that for a little later if I get to it. But David doesn't trust him for a moment. Have you seen that AT&T commercial? It's on all the football games where the girl's sitting in the airplane and everything is costing money, which is supposed to be free. Okay, then I'll just take water. Well, that'll be $25. Like, what? Yeah, those are for the special people up there. And do you remember what the girl does? She looks at the attendant and says, it's not that I don't think you're telling me the truth. It's just that you haven't been telling me the truth. I think that's what David is doing to Saul here. He hears Saul's words of remorse and his emotional response and his promise and his looking out for his family, but he doesn't believe his heart for a moment. So when Saul leaves and takes his men in one direction, David doesn't trust him. He heads in a different direction, and he, is in his, he and his men in the chapter, in the strongholds. So that's the text. If I can wrap it up with three points, the first would be this. Let's honor and love the Lord and his true king. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of Saul for a moment. Jesus Christ has not come to harm us. He has not come to condemn us. He has not come to reveal really tough rules for us to follow in order to earn the Father's acceptance. And he's not come to steal our joy. He has come to be our friend. He's come to live for us, to show us how to live, to be an example. And he's come to serve us. He has come to rescue us. He's the hostage rescuer, the devil beater, the warrior who fights for us. Jesus has come to sacrifice himself for us and to die. Jesus has come to be our king, to rule, govern, protect, and build, to be our groom as he woos us, betrothes us, and enchants us. Then he left. And Jesus then sent his Holy Spirit to be our exorcist, the Spirit refuses to share residence with an evil power within. So the Spirit boots out the forces of darkness within and takes up residence, and we become His temple. We become His, His place of dwelling. And then He goes to work, does this Holy Spirit. He's our worship leader as He messes with our heart and causes us to have new affections. And He becomes our wonderful counselor as what the Holy Spirit says and what God's law says are the same things as they point us in the, in the right way in which we're to live our life. He becomes our vine dresser. As he sees us disconnected from the vine, he takes us, the branch, and he, he grafts us in, which allows Christ's Holy Spirit and his, his sap to flow through us. And all of a sudden, there is incredible fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, and the such they come from, from Jesus through the Spirit going into us and out. It's a beautiful work of what Jesus does. He's the most fantastic person, gift, and gift giver the world has ever experienced. He ought to be understood, received, accepted, reverenced, adored, followed, obeyed, sacrificed for, screamed about, worshipped, exalted, glorified, and enjoyed. He is to increase. We ought to joyfully decrease. I want to sing, Behold, our God. How great is it to have a Jesus around? 
That should have been the attitude of Saul. How fantastic it is to be king and have a guy named David around to serve and to love. This is absolutely fantastic. But Saul doesn't do that. He's initially interested in some of David's benefits, like we're initially interested in Christ's benefits and blessings. But we distrust Jesus. We discount his warnings. We're disobedient. We become dangerous to others. We're self-exalting. We're deceived and foolish, maybe even stupid, as we're led about here and there by every wind of doctrine, including sometimes evil-spirited doctrine. And we end up hating Jesus as our enemy. He's not our, he didn't make us his enemy. We hate him. We're at enmity with him. This is what Saul was like to David. This is like we, what we naturally are towards Christ. And it doesn't make any sense, does it? It's ludicrous. Remember the whole moment just a second ago? Behold our God. He's that good. And we hate him. How does Jesus Christ respond? How did David respond? Despite our former opportunities to love him, despite our folly and our self-worship and our hatred and our murder, despite our failure to repent and are even at this very moment wanting to do him in. Saul at that very moment wanted David dead, but even in the very moment when Saul wanted David dead, before Saul ever pretended to repent, David showed grace and mercy to, to Saul. Though Jesus had every right to walk away from us, to defend his honor, to make us his enemy, to give tit for tat, karma, or let us reap what we have sowed, but though he has every right to display vengeance, to retaliate, to destroy, and to use the club that is his in Psalm 2 language. Though Jesus knows there is a day of judgment coming when God will make everything right. While in the very process of hating Jesus, while attacking and abusing the Messiah, Jesus loves and honors the dishonorable. And he proclaims to us, I have shown you mercy in the past. I've got more mercy for you right now. I am not your enemy. Jesus actually says, I love my enemies. He offers forgiveness and reconciliation. And he encourages us to repent. I do not have time to go through the difference between Saul's remorse and gospel repentance. This is not what you want. Though you say the right words and have the right feelings, Saul was remorseful and it will be proven in the next couple chapters. How would Christ have us respond? We are the dishonorable. He is the honorable. He would have us repent, believe, and worship. And there's no better person to be king of your life. It's ludicrous for us to be incorrigible and not repent. Point two, let's honor and love the dishonorable enemies of the true king. 
Now we're going to put ourselves in the feet of, in the, in the place of David's men. I told you all the right things they thought, all the bad ways in which they were suffering. We, too, have become friends and followers of the Messiah. And we, too, witness the lack of honor held by Christ's enemies towards our Christ. It disturbs us. He deserves all glory, laud, and honor, and it should really tick us off when we see them doing him wrong. We are people as Christians who have experienced the mockery and harassment from Christ's enemies. We're also experiencing injustice, persecution, and tribulation, and more is probably to come. But what do we do? We forget the love and mercy and grace we have received. We forget the forgiveness and reconciliation we have received. And we forget the interest of our honorable king. He loves his enemies, and it's almost like we should love his enemies too. Oh, wait. He does exactly tell us to do that, doesn't he? That we are to love our enemies. And you can parse, if you want to, a distinction between love and honor, but I will tell you that any external display without an internal heart is no good. And so any external display of honor while you hate and despise and want to just take that person out on the inside is not acceptable. He would have you love your enemies. But at this point, I'm not even talking about the enemies that are in office. I'm talking about all the people that are following the enemies in the office who hate the Messiah and his people. Yes, there are certain exceptions, maybe. But I hear Jesus Christ saying to me about those people out there who are dishonoring him, those people out there who want him out, him gone, and his people. I hear Jesus Christ looking at me saying, this is not the day of vengeance. This is not the day of retaliation. Follow my lead. Heed my example. Love your enemies. Watch your words. Tell them the truth. Show them mercy and grace. See if they will repent. You see, we tend to grade sins, and we look over here at Saul and say, that's really bad to be a leader who does bad. But we look at us over here who are dishonoring the wicked, and we say, well, that's kind of normal. It kind of... No, it's really bad. And this sin is just as bad as that sin. So if you're an unbeliever, repent and run to Jesus. If you're a believer who's dishonoring those who are dishonoring Christ, you're supposed to love them. Preach to them. Talk to them. Speak to them. Give them mercy and grace. Speak truth to power. But wait on God to do what God wants to do have the same heart as your Messiah, let's see if the Lord will allow us to reclaim some of them, that they might become followers with us. But we are supposed to honor even dishonorable enemies of Christ. Third point. Following Christ, I hear him say, honor and love the dishonorable leaders of the true king. So what do you do when your parents are dogs. Maybe I shouldn't have even said that. That probably, I, I want to repent of that right now. That, not in my notes. 
That's what happens when I walk around. What do you do when your parents do horrible things? What do you do when there's no one who's hurt you more in life than your husband, and yet you swore in some ceremony somewhere that you would obey and follow and submit? I mean, I can keep going. What happens when you're coaching a soccer game and the ref steals the game? Does your grandchild wrong while you're watching on the sideline? What do you do when there's selective justice by the police force? What do you do when your elders are manipulative? What do you do when the preacher wants to be God of his church? What do you do when your government looks like it's in partnership with the Legion of Darkness? Yeah, there may be some exceptions. We believe in self-defense, judicial execution, passive resistance, political activism. There is such a thing as just war. But we have to recognize that the Lord is the one who puts people in authority, and quite often it's the Lord's will to put dishonorable people in authority. You don't have to sit there and take it. You can get out of Dodge. You don't have to be quiet and touch not the Lord's anointed by keeping your mouth shut. You can speak truth to power, and you can tell other people how you're being harmed, and we are interested in supporting you in that way. But we try hard to remember that there's a king of kings who sits on the throne. And we we have to be like David, who is in the middle of 20 years, I think, now of suffering. I said 10, but I think it's more than that. And David says, in essence, I'm going to wait. And I hate this, and I'm praying against that, and I'm speaking against that, but I'm not touching that. Because I have a God who sits on the throne and he has a big, big arm and he has a long, long memory. And God is long-suffering and he's patient and he doesn't always do the things we want as quickly as we want. But I'm going to honor my God. I want to honor Jesus Christ who sits on the throne by somehow, even though I'm suffering, even though I'm hurting, by showing honor to the enemies of Christ's church and to dishonorable leaders. Which means, again, I am going to strongly encourage you to go before the Lord and ask Him for divine wisdom and seek the Spirit's leading on how you should think and politic. Spend your money. Put your bumper stickers on your car. Wear your buttons, get the lawn signs, go on a parade or a march. You should love your country and your people enough to get involved and want to see righteousness win. It is a good thing to say, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to encourage that. And we may not all come to the same conclusions. Your job is to go before your Lord and get engaged but you got to do it differently. You can't look like the world. And when the world steps up and says, I'm just going for the jugular, 
the church that understands Jesus Christ says, I'm not going for the jugular. I'm even going to repent of taking off a corner of a robe. Forbid it that I should do that which I shouldn't by touching the Lord's anointed or even dishonoring those dishonorable people whom he has placed in positions of power. Man, I jumped in it today, didn't I? I'm sure there's some emails. If you'll please send those to Kurt Heitman. He's the one who prayed. And if he would have prayed better, the sermon would have come out better. He will be answering on behalf of me.